I love history and different elements of history. Uh, lots of things that happen throughout history and stories of you know, incredible acts in history. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's ingrained in me. My mom was a history teacher. My sister's a history teacher. And uh, I love reading uh, some biographies of some guys. Um, there's some biographical authors that everything they put out, I instantly buy because I love the way they write about who they write about. But looking at all of these people in history and some of the like biographies that I read, you read because it's um, of what not to do <laughs> and how not to act. And uh, other ones, though, you, you, you read because you want to emulate different aspects of their lives. And I remember reading a biography a few years ago on George Washington. And uh, if there's anybody in history, American history particularly, who's done some incredible, almost unbelievable things, it's George Washington. Even as a young man going to war, fighting in battles, having his hat shut off, getting to the end of battles with bullet holes all through his clothes but not one scratch on him, having a horse shot out from under him in, in battle, getting up, finding another horse, getting on it, having that horse shot out from him in battle, getting up and finding another horse. I'd be like, I'm done with horses. <laughs> Let's get a little lower to the ground. Um, then going on from there, you know, leading the impossible task of defeating the British Army in the Revolutionary War, the greatest army at that point that had ever existed in human history, and defeating them. And then they put him in charge of the Constitutional Congress, as all these different personalities and argumentative people get into a room and argue about how to form a new country. And George Washington, you know, didn't get in on the particulars, but he was in charge of policing the room. He was like the parent, the grown-up. And uh, what was it, what's fascinating about this is, uh, is a great story, is George Washington, all his life, had a, had a bad temper, and he tried to fight his bad temper and keep it under control. Uh, and so when he was in a situation where everyone in the room was losing their temper and he tried to control himself in that Constitutional Congress. George Washington, big man, six foot two, six foot three, 230, 250 pounds, big man. What he would do to control his temper when the room would get heated is he would crack walnuts with his bare hands in his farm strength. And those guys in that room are screaming at each other and they would hear those nuts start cracking and they would shut up. <laughs> because they did not want to endure the ire of giant George Washington. Well, they, they, he wins the Revolutionary War, they get a constitution, and they nominate him to be president, and he gets elected overwhelmingly. But before he takes the oath of office, he writes a letter. And George Washington, great man, done great things, um, he has some doubts. And in this letter, he writes, uh, he says, I don't know if I can ever live up to the expectations that people have for me in this job. I think no matter what I do, people will see me as a failure because this is an impossible task. George Washington, winner of the Revolutionary War, president of the Constitutional Congress, 
said, I am, don't have the ability to do this. He doubted himself in the moment, even though his resume was phenomenal when it came to leadership. He doubted whether he could do what they were asking him to do. Some of that was deeply rooted in him because from a child, he had members of his own family that spoke words of negativity and self-doubt into him. And those voices were always in his head, even as he fought those battles, even as he stepped into the presidency. Those voices were always there. All he knew to do was what God placed before him the next day, and he did it. But it's that moment of self-doubt we're going to look at today. Because that comes to all of us, wherever we find ourselves. But what we have to do is we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. We have to ask ourselves, who am I? I'm asking you, who are you? Who are you, really? Who did God make you to be? Who did God design you to be? Because we may have moments like George Washington or like the person we're going to look at today and say, I don't know if I can do this. I, I, I know me, and I, I can't pull this off. Whether that's from some sort of voices that have been spoken into us from our past, maybe it's from decisions we've made in our past, Maybe it's because the thing that God is asking us to do, we feel is beyond us. But when God comes and God speaks, it's on us not to determine whether we have the ability to do it. It's on us just to do it. God will take care of everything else. God knows who you are because God made you to do whatever he's put before you to do. So look in your Bibles today at Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. If you can use a Bible there on the rack in front of you, it'll be on page 855 there. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. That's yours to keep. Take it home. Keep it. Uh, it's a free gift. You can have it. Um, but Luke chapter 1, it'll also be on the screens here in the room, or if you're watching online, it'll be on the screen right below where I am. But in Luke chapter 1, we're looking at Christmas gifts in the, life, in the lives of several people of Jesus coming and the gift that Jesus was in the lives of those he came in contact with. Last week we took a look at Joseph, uh, his stepfather who raised him. This week we're going to take a look at his mother, Mary. So look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of uh, a city, a city of Galilee, named Nazareth. Has anybody ever heard of Nazareth before? You know why you've heard of Nazareth? Because Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth. If they weren't from Nazareth, none of you would have any idea of where this town ever existed. Imagine how many towns that have existed in the history of the world that we have no idea about. If Mary and Joseph were not from Nazareth, we would never have heard of this town. We wouldn't know it. It's in some obscure part of the world, some little region, it's a village. It's smaller than our town. It's a little town in the middle of the Middle East. And this angel comes from God, is sent by God to this little village to marry there. Look at this. This is who he's sent to, verse 27. He sent to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. 
Now that introduction there, look at that verse, is very generic to a virgin, just some random girl betrothed to a man, some random man whose name happened to be Joseph and her name was Mary. You know, it is almost presented this introduction as, you know, very unimportant. Nazareth was very unimportant. Mary and Joseph is not saying he was sent to the mother of the Son of God. He was sent to, you know, uh, who was betrothed to the Joseph. Doesn't say any of that. It's all, I mean, if you look there, it's, you know, the indefinite article, a, just to a girl, to, to a virgin, to a man. Uh, there's nothing uh, in seeming first glance. I mean, if, you know, if you've been around church at all, or ever heard the Christmas story, you've heard this before, and so you know what's coming, and you think, there's nothing new I can find in the Christmas story, but if you look at that, their introduction, the way Luke, the author of this book, presents them, he's presenting them almost as unimportant, as just some random people. But when it comes to God, there's nothing random. There's no coincidence with the Lord. This angel was sent very specifically to this part of the world, to Galilee, to Nazareth, to wherever Mary happened to be that day. Not because she was one of many virgins in Nazareth, but because God specifically designed her for this moment. And so the angel was sent to her and nobody else. And so the angel comes to Mary. And look at what he says. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, I always love this scene because I try to picture it in my head. You know, we always picture angels coming and appearing in the sky, but that's not in the scripture. And so the, the imagery is wherever, if Mary's in her room or she's in the kitchen or she's outside, maybe she's at school. I mean, we don't know. Wherever Mary happens to be, an angel just appears right next to her. You ever get that feeling that somebody's there and you turn around and they're there and you're like, oh, ah, kind of deal? That's this situation. Mary's there and all of a sudden, boom, there's somebody there. And it's an angel. Now, just some context. There were periods of time in the history of Israel, and I say periods of time, thousands of years, that the message of the Lord came all the time. There were always prophets, and the message of the Lord came. There were even schools to train up prophets. And so there were, you know, dozens, hundreds of prophets at certain times in the history of Israel. And then the last prophet dies off, and then there's silence from God for 400 years. No more words, no more, none of this spoken, no angels appearing, no vision. 400 years, nothing happens. And then this moment breaks that silence. This angel shows up to Mary. It says, greetings, oh favored one. Now again, I, I'm trying to picture it. When the angel, Gabriel, gets this assignment, do you think he's like anticipating how to present the news? Like, if we're ever given an assignment where we have to present something important, a lot of us, you know, have, you know the, the biggest fear in the world isn't spiders or snakes, it's public speaking. And so you go, and, and if you ever get that assignment, you practice, and you want to make sure you get it right. And they tell you, when, when you practice, sometimes you want to practice in the mirror so you know how you're looking, so you're not like, just like this. But you see yourself in the mirror, you're like, oh, I shouldn't do that kind of deal. I almost picture Gabriel practicing how he's, the intonation he's going to put in that phrase, right? 
greetings, oh favored one. Like he's practicing with it, greetings, or greetings, like he's going to surprise her. Oh favored one. Like, you know, uh, Rod Roddy on The Price is Right. Come on down. You're the next contestant kind of deal. I don't know how Gabriel presented it. However it was, he just pops right next to her and says, greetings, oh favored one. The Lord is with you. And her heart starts to be fast. In verse 29, she's greatly troubled. And she's trying to discern. She's trying to figure out. Last week when we were looking at, at Joseph, the man she's betrothed to, it says Joseph considered these things. Here, Mary's trying to discern this greeting. She's trying to figure it out, trying to wrap her head around what this angel, I mean, an angel, I mean, my goodness, she's been taught. There, there's been no visions, no angels, no speaking for 400 years. And now one has come to her in Nazareth, in Galilee, and she's trying to understand it all, trying to figure everything out that is being implied simply by what he's saying. But the angel doesn't let her continue on with her thoughts. He says in verse 30. Now again, too, we don't know how long it transpired between the first thing the angel said and the second thing the angel said. Maybe there was a long, awkward silence. And the angel just let Mary sit there in the awkward silence until he finally spoke. We don't know. Whatever period of time with her discerning this, the angel speaks there in verse 30. And he says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now notice, we're going to talk about this in just a second. The first thing he said to her, he called her, O favored one. And now he says it here again in verse 30. You have found favor with God. So he's emphasizing God's favor. So hang on to that. Verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. Now that's also important. It's not he will be called great, he will be thought of as great. Greatness will be a part of his very nature. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the angel lays out for her what the plan is going to be. This Messiah that has been prophesied for thousands of years, now is the moment, Mary, and you're going to be his mother. And so Mary's brain starts to go into overdrive as she's trying to process, again, all of this new information that's being bombarded onto her. He's saying, you are going to be pregnant, it's going to be the Son of God, and He's going to bring salvation to the world. And Mary's first thought isn't, well, I don't know how God's going to pull this off. I, I doubt God's going to be able to do this. There's another moment at the beginning of the book of Matthew where an angel shows up to Zechariah about telling him about the, the birth of uh, John the Baptist. And uh, Zechariah doubts whether God can do it. Well, Mary here doesn't doubt whether God can do it. What she doubts is her involvement. Look at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She hears God's plan and she doubts whether or not she can be a part of it. She doubts because of her situation whether she can be involved in what God has planned. She doubts her ability to be involved in what God has planned. It's almost as though she thought the angel had the wrong person. You came to the wrong one. I, I can't do this. Physically, I cannot do this. You don't understand, angel. Can't, you, you, it's the next door. Then you missed the one. You're one house off. 
You got the wrong, I know it's a long way to come from throwing a God down here to Nazareth. You got the wrong address. She's doubting whether she can be involved in what God is going to do. She thought her situation, the situation of her life, prevented her from doing everything that God was telling her to do. She thought her circumstance prevented her from being involved. But in reality, it wasn't her ability that God was coming for. It wasn't her ability to do anything for God to come to her and tell her that this was going to happen. Because it was God's ability to do it. It was just her willingness to participate. She just had to be willing to participate in what God was going to do. And so she's doubting whether or not she can pull this off. She says, I can't, God. I can't do it. This will not happen because of my circumstance. And so the angel responds to her self-doubt. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. So Mary won't need to do anything except allow God to empower and guide her through what was to come. The angel's telling her, you don't have to do anything, Mary. You just have to be willing to participate. We've got everything covered. You just have to be willing to be a part of it. It's not about how much you can do. It's not about your own personal ability. It's not about your own personal circumstance and where you are in life in this season. It's not about any of that. It's about you being willing to do what God has for you to do. And he gives an example. Verse 36. The angel says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the angel's telling Mary, the situation depends entirely upon the unlimited power of God. It doesn't depend on anything else. Only the unlimited power of God. He says, even your relative Elizabeth, who was way beyond childbearing years, is having a baby. Just to show you what God is able to do. So even if Mary now is uncertain of of the capability of her qualification to be a part of what God has planned, God is more than capable enough for the both of them. Because of the very thing he says in that verse, nothing will be impossible with God. If there's ever a verse you need to memorize, it's that one. Write it down. You need to memorize Luke 137. Nothing will be impossible with God. Say, God wants me to do this thing. I don't know how. I don't have the money. I don't have the resources. I don't have the training. I don't have the experience. I don't have the qualifications. I don't have anything. Nothing will be impossible with God. God, but I don't know. Nothing will be impossible with God. We see it over and over in Scripture. Over and over and over again in Scripture. Abraham and Sarah having a baby. Sarah even laughed. When God said, you're going to have a baby at your age. Nothing will be impossible with God. So you know what they named the baby? Isaac, which means laughter. (laughs) She can always remember her doubting God. Nothing will be impossible with God. A little boy, teenager, going up against a seasoned warrior and kills him with a rock. Nothing will be impossible with God. A faithful servant of God thrown in persecution into a den of lions. When it's happened before, the people die before they hit the floor. 
because the lions are so hungry. He survives the night, maybe cuddled up with the lions, because nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Parting the Red Sea, nothing will be impossible with God. Whatever you might face, whoever you think you are, I mean, when Moses, before he parted the Red Sea, and God came to him and said, you're going to lead my people after they've been in slavery for hundreds of years, you're going to lead them out of slavery. And Moses argues with God. He knows it's God. He has absolutely no doubt in his mind. He's talking to God, and God says, you're going to do this. Moses argues with him and said, no, I can't. I can't. I, it's, I just can't, God. I don't have anything. I don't even speak good. I don't speak good, God. And God said, it doesn't matter. I'm sending somebody who does. He's coming to help you. Because nothing will be impossible, God. If God is with you and God's given you the, 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 the path forward, nothing will be impossible with God. If you're walking with God, there is no impossibility. It's all possible. However outlandish, however crazy, wherever he's placed you, he comes to Mary and says, you are going to have a baby when it's biologically impossible. Forget health class, that doesn't matter. Because nothing will be impossible with God. And he's going to save the world from their sins. And so, this is where we are. Mary speaks to this in verse 38. Now this We've heard Mary, we've heard the angel, Mary doubts her own involvement, and the angel tells her nothing will be impossible with God, and Mary's response in verse 38 is incredible. Mary says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So Mary was willing to submit and follow whatever the Lord would bring to her. Whatever it meant for her personally in the days and the years to come, Mary here makes a, a great faith commitment. I am willing to follow the Lord wherever, whenever, however he would have me go. Because if it is from the Lord, it is always best. If it's from the Lord, it is always best. Always. We may not be able to see it. Sometimes the things that come we say are from the Lord and they're not. They're from somewhere else. Sometimes the things that are from somewhere else, we say they're from somewhere else, but they're really from the Lord. It's only our proximity to God that guides us to where the best is. And if it's from God, it is always best. Always. Even if we don't understand it. Even if it makes no sense in our mind, in our thinking. But if it's from the Lord, it is always best. And so Mary hears this. From this angel, I'm going to get pregnant. It's going to be the son of God. He's going to save the world. Her question to the angel isn't, well, what's Joseph going to think? Well, what's my parent? What are my parents going to think? Well, I live in a small town. What's a small town going to say when I go to Walmart to get my stuff? What, what are people going to do? What, what, what's my boss going to say? What are my siblings going to say? She doesn't ask any of that. Because for Mary, in this moment, she understands this is from the Lord, and so this is best. But it's not just best for her, it's what's best for the world. Imagine if Mary had said no. <laughs> yeah, this is too weird. I'm not doing this. You're not from God. You're, you know, the taco I had for breakfast, which was left over from three weeks ago. You know, but Mary doesn't do any of that. She determines that this message is from the Lord. She knows it's best, and she's willing to submit to it, come what may. 
Jump back a little bit. Back up to verse 28. I want to point something out. We're going to go back to that favored phrase. So Mary concludes this section with the understanding that this is from the Lord, so it's best. But it starts with this angel telling her, you're favored. Oh, favored one, you have found favor with God, verse 30. And, and, and Mary is disturbed and unnerved by the appearance and greeting of the angel. The angel shows up and says that the Lord is with her of all people. They've been taught God hadn't visited us for 400 years, and now he's shown up and visited me in this little know-nothing town. I'm just nobody here, and he's shown up, and he's talking to me. And she's told that that period of, of divine silence is over, and God is revealing himself in this powerful and unique way. And as a result, Mary is pretty confused and fearful of what he is saying to her. And so the angel then tells her, you're favored and you have found favor. But what, I did some research on those words, it's very interesting. That word literally means in the original language, oh favored one, the one to receive grace. And when he says later, you have found favor with the Lord, he's saying, you have found grace from the Lord. You have found grace, you have received grace. Grace being something, receiving something you don't deserve. See, Mary should have no reason to fear because she has received grace from God. And reception of God's grace means that the Lord is present as the Holy Spirit who brings power. They're a package deal. Uh, uh, Grace, God's presence, the Holy Spirit, his power. Grace, God's presence, the Holy Spirit, his power. They come together. They are always together. The Spirit is God's presence. The Spirit brings God's power, and the Spirit is an example of God's grace on us. But this is not simply something for Mary to experience. Oh, favored one, receiver of grace, the one who has the grace from God. This is for all people who believe. Paul wrote about this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for who? Some people? The best dressed, only the people who smell nice, only the people who shave, only the people we like, only the people who go to our church and not the one down the road, only the people who vote like us, only the people with the same color skin, only the people who, you know, don't make me mad. No, the grace of God is for all people, everybody, even people you don't like, especially you. Grace is for all people. And so this angel comes to Mary and says, you have God's grace. And Paul tells us there in Titus, we have God's grace. Same grace Mary had, we have. God's grace delivered to us. God's grace is for everyone. God's grace is for everyone, along with everything that goes with it, his presence, his spirit, his power. You know, we may feel insignificant or even feel insignificant in in whatever season of life we find ourselves in. And we may have been told by somebody in our past that we are nobody from nowhere. As Mary being from Galilee, from Nazareth. We may have been told that in the past. But 
that's not true in any capacity. Because what we have to do is we're not supposed to uh, 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 compare ourselves to anybody else or listen to any of those voices. We need to listen to the Lord and what he tells us. Because people tell us all kinds of things. People compare us to all kinds of people. People can say all kinds of things about us that we're not as good as somebody else, that we don't have as much as somebody else has. And then those thoughts begin to seep into us and we just can't stop thinking about them. Well, that person's got more health than I do. Well, that person's kid has more health than my kid. Well, that person has more money. Well, that person's got this and that. And, and I don't have as much and I'm not as much and I can't do as much because of where I'm at and what I've got and, and, and who I'm around. I, just, I have been given the short straw in life. But God's grace is for everyone. All of those things, all of those thoughts couldn't be further from the truth because God's grace is for you. And so just like Mary, you are favored because you have God's grace. You are a receiver of God's grace. You have found favor with God. And anyone or anything that would tell you different is opposing Almighty God. And to what he has called you. Because God's grace is on you. And so you need to know who you are. When those voices come and speak those things. You need to know who you are and how to combat that. Because the enemy will do anything to keep you from following what God has on you. Anything. Anything. And it may come from an unexpected source. But you have to know who you are in God. You have to know what he has called you to do. And you have to know what he has placed on you. His grace. I've had people tell me to abandon what God has called me to do. To my face. I've had people tell me, you're not called by God. To my face. You're not called to preach. You're not called to this church. I even had somebody tell me, you're not saved. And however much you think, you, you know those things aren't true when people say stuff, or you hear people say stuff, it still sinks in a little bit. It's still ammunition the enemy can use when you're sitting alone in the quiet. And then what God had to show me in those moments, when that person told me, you're not even saved, is God took me back to my dad's office in Cleburne, Texas, the moment I got saved. That person told me, you're not called to preach. God took me back to Falls Creek, Oklahoma, where I was when he called me. That person said, you're not called to this church. God took me back to Andrea Lane in Rowlett, Texas. And said, no, you are. I can, I can go back right now, sitting on that couch. couch it's in my office. Right, it's in my office right now that I was sitting on when I got that phone call. And I know God's hand, and I know God's work. And so because of that, I know who I am in Christ. And so it is with you. Wherever you are, whatever voices speak into your mind, whenever somebody may physically speak it to your face, and you want to knock some heads, <laughs> spiritually, God's grace is on you. 
And so don't believe anything else anybody would tell you otherwise. When they say, oh, God's grace isn't on you for that. Ooh, son, you don't know. They don't know. They don't know where God's brought you. They don't know what God's spoken to you. They don't know where God puts you and why he puts you and how he puts you. They weren't there when God spoke. They weren't there. How many people were standing around Moses when he's talking to that burning bush? None. It was Moses. Nobody else. Nobody else. Who was with Joshua when God said, you're going to knock down the walls of Jericho? Nobody else. Nobody. God comes and he'll speak and he'll show you the way. He may speak to other people, absolutely. But it's whether or not you're going to listen to God or listen to the other voices. When they say, his grace isn't on you for that. God didn't tell you that. God didn't tell you that. I had somebody tell me that one time. God didn't tell you that. And I said, well, no, he did, actually. <laughs> he, he did. He did. I said, God speaks because God's grace is on you. On you. And nothing can undo God's grace. Not someone else's opinion. Not someone else's prejudices. Not someone else's bitterness. Not your own past or your own mistakes or your own sin. Cannot undo God's grace. And the thing about God's grace, God's grace doesn't depend on somebody else's opinion at all. <laughs> Your eternity doesn't depend upon their grace, but on God's grace. Your way forward is on God's grace and what God has for you over and above everything else. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I can promise you it's not. I can stand up here and with confidence say all this, and then come Tuesday, somebody's going to say something to me that's going to knock me to my knees. It happens. Ask Katie. <laughs> she knows. But we have to come back to center and say, God's grace is on me. Maybe what you need to do, maybe this is your challenge for this week, for the next few weeks, is you need to start searching Scripture. Maybe go back to the back of your Bible. And find that section, not the weights and measures, but uh, some of the sections back there, some of your Bibles may have about what you do, you know, scripture references about certain things, about certain, uh, th that you need confidence, how you know who you are in Christ, that what, what does the scripture say about you? That you're loved, write it down. That you have God's grace, write it down. That we just saw a minute ago, nothing is impossible with God, I, all things are possible, write it down. And you need to have confidence so that when the enemy comes and speaks those words to, to, to try to uh, defeat what the Lord has put within you, you can go back and say, no, I know. I know, I know, I know, I know. This is where God has me. This is what God's called me to do. And God's grace is on this. And we need to follow that. Cling to that. Because I guarantee you there's going to be moments that are going to be difficult. And it may come... Some of the times, it's going to come from somebody you trust. Somebody who's even spoken truth and powerful words of faith. But you have to know who is God and what he has done for you. You have to know who you are in Christ. Be confident in who you are in Christ. Don't worry about who you are in somebody else's eyes. It's about being confident in who you are in Christ. So that when the shots come, you can keep moving forward.
What's that quote from the great philosopher, Rocky Balboa? It's not about how hard you hit, it's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. Keep moving forward because the Lord is your strength. Some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but I will trust in the name of the Lord my God. Following God in the confidence he's giving you, knowing who you are in Christ. Because you have God's grace. But notice in verse 38 there in Luke chapter 1, Mary had the grace of God because she was willing to receive it. Willing to receive it. Willing to follow the Lord. And so you have to ask, your, you ask yourself that question. Will you follow the Lord today in whatever capacity it is? Maybe it's something you've been fighting with God about for months or even years. Because you're resistant and hesitant and unsure, unsure about yourself, like Mary there, not knowing how you can play a part in what God has called you to do. But you need to rest in the fact that his grace is on you to do what he's put before you to do. Are you willing to follow the Lord? But then at the very beginning, will you receive his grace Today, will you lean on the power of his grace and stop listening to the voices of those opposing God's hand in your life? Will you listen to the Lord today? Will you follow him today? Even if it means for the very first time, believing that Jesus is God's son, that he died so all your sins would be forgiven, and he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Maybe you need to believe in Jesus today and receive that grace for the first time today. You need to do it. You need to step out in faith and receive that grace and have his grace on you for now forever. Receive that grace. Maybe you have received the grace or maybe you need to come and, and pray with me here in, the, in, in just a moment and, and believe in Jesus today. But either way, maybe you just need to be baptized. Maybe you need to be baptized and show the world you belong to Jesus. Show the world like Ray this morning that you're ready to step out and follow the Lord now. Well, the baptistry's there, and it's warm. There's water there. No bugs in it today. We can go. Well, there wasn't earlier. I don't know. Maybe one flew in there. We'll, we'll see. If you need to get baptized today, we got some T-shirts. We can do it right now. We already got towels up there. You can dry off. We got robes, whatever. We can, you, can, we, you can get baptized right now if you need to exercise the grace God's put on you. Maybe you need to join the church and put your life here and serve here and do what God has for you. Maybe in just a moment when I pray, you need to come and kneel down here at these steps and speak with the Lord. Spend some time and speak with the Lord about walking in his grace. Walking in the grace he's placed on you. Acting on faith in whatever area, in whatever thing he has placed before you to embrace, to walk in, to, to act in some, maybe it's something huge. I mean, like coming to Mary and saying the Son of God is coming. I, it's probably not that big, but maybe it's something really, really big he's placed on you. And you need to step out in faith and do it because of the grace he's put on you, not because of the voices that are speaking in the back of your mind, but because of who you are in Christ. And step out in faith and do it. And follow the Lord. Follow the Lord today. So whatever you need to do, I'm going to pray. If you need to come and believe in Jesus, you need to come and be baptized or join the church, or you need to come and just pray 
for the grace that he has put on you, for the confidence in knowing the grace he's put on you. Maybe it's to come and pray about who you are in Christ. Maybe it's to come and pray for somebody in your life, a family member, a friend, who is wrestling with this and riddled with uncertainty and self-doubt. And they need to know who they are in Christ. Then I urge you, come and pray here at the altar. Y'all pray with me right now. God, I thank you for your hand and your intervention in our world and in our own lives. And we see in Mary's life, there she was in Galilee and Nazareth, minding her own business that day, and an angel shows up and says, I've got something planned for you. God's got something planned for you. She doubted herself, but then she had confidence in you. God, I pray that we would have confidence in you. No matter what our situation, our circumstance, no matter who has said what, we would have confidence in you and your ability and your power. And we would walk and live lives as living demonstrations of your grace on a people. God, if anyone in here needs to believe and receive that grace today for the first time, God, I pray they would. They would stop arguing in their head, do it next week, do it another time, Christmas is coming, I'll do it around Christmas, I'll wait till the new year. They would stop arguing and they would do it today and believe in you. Get baptized today. Join the church today. Come and fall on their knees. God, I pray we would all, all, be reminded of who we are in you. Reminded of who we are. Not people trying to live up to the unrealistic expectations of other created beings but people following almighty God in the road that you have set before us taking confident step after confident step because you told us to step there give us clarity Give us direction. And God, give us the courage to follow you always, never wavering. God, I thank you. I thank you for your patience with us. In your name I pray.